0: welcome to the gestalt it rundown for today wednesday march 22nd my name is tom hollingsworth and i hope that you're taking it easy today because it is national goof off day it's also national bavarian crepes day so if you feel like doing anything why don't you have yourself a nice thin pancake we've got a big buffet of news headed your way with some great stories this week but joining me is a co-host that i've worked with many times and one of uh, my very good friends mr chris Grundemann. chris welcome back to the show
1: Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me again.
0: Well, we're very happy to have you here. Of course, Steven's out at uh, Storage Field Day this week, but we've got a great lineup of news, including a storage story. So we'll see how this goes without the storage master around. But we are gonna start off with something that is near and dear to both of our hearts, and that is Secure Services Edge, SSE. Because a new report from the Del Oro Group says that SSE revenues grew 38% last year in 2022. Uh, the report has mentioned the rise of remote work, moving a lot of people uh, around and causing them to need these kinds of services, as well as the fact that enterprises are moving those applications that they use into the cloud, both for their on-premises enterprise workers, as well as folks who are remote. Um, Firewall revenue also seemed to continue to grow and exceeded $12 billion for the first time ever. Um, Chris, I know that SSE has kind of become the new buzzword for all the things that we're talking about when it comes to secure connectivity, but do traditional enterprise security plays still have a place or are we just going to go SSE all of the things?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Uh, because I think in large part, I mean, so so one, just to kind of step back a bit and kind of set the stage in case folks, you know, haven't followed this progression. You know, SASE was all the rage, what a year, two years, three years ago, uh, SSE has kind of come out of that. SSE is essentially the same thing as SASE without the SD-WAN. So it's just the security stuff. Um, they're kind of bypassing the network security convergence uh, potential issues there, I think, and just delivering uh, secure cloud-based applications um, through cloud-delivered network security. Uh, it also covers users' access to those applications, right? So, really, we're talking about a combination of Casb, SWG, and ZTNA. Sometimes there's a firewall thrown in there. Uh, the definition's a little loose, still, I think. Um, and I think the the big thing there, though, is this really is cloud-delivered network security, but Typically, it's specific to cloud-based applications. So obviously, there's a huge role for this to play in all of our organizations now and into the future. But I think, you know, with edge applications on the rise and on-premises equipment still a thing, uh, there is a need for traditional security as well. Uh, also, there's a bit of a gap here where, you know, I see a lot of the security market moving to detection and response type services, right? Essentially, outsourcing a bit of the um you know, digital, you know, uh, incident response and digital forensics services to somebody who's really expert and specialized in that. And you don't see those kind of services, at least yet bundled with SSE. And so there may be a gap there. Um, at GigaOM, we actually cover the space and we call it SSA, slightly different acronym, slightly different, um, just to be more encompassing. And we include, uh, EDR, NDR, XDR in that mix. Um, so, you know, I, I think, Again, you know, to answer your question, traditional security still has a place, and SSE is definitely a, a big um, growth area. Um, you know, Also in the report, the top three SSE vendors have 58% of the market by revenue in 2022. That's Cisco, Broadcom slash Symantec, uh, and Zscaler, um, which is interesting. On the GigaOM report for SSA, which again is looking at a little bit different factors and only looking at technology, not revenue, uh, we've got Cato Networks. Palo Alto Networks, Versa Networks, and Zscaler as as the four leaders in the space. So um, interesting that you know that that doesn't the, the revenue share doesn't quite line up with um, at least the ohm analysis from the technology perspective. So uh, I think this is an exciting space to watch, and we'll continue to see more growth uh, as the year progresses. Nutanix CIO Wendy Pfeiffer has announced that she is leaving. The news comes as Nutanix is wrapping up an internal probe around improper software use. The SEC notified the company that they were deficient in filing a new 10-Q, as required by law, which is apparently being held up by this investigation. Per reports, the software being misused was only supposed to carry an evaluation license, but was instead used for interoperability testing and proof-of-concept deployments. That extra-incurred expense is the reason for the delayed 10-Q. Tom what could happen here if this doesn't get resolved
0: well the ultimate thing that could happen is that Nutanix's stock could be delisted from the stock exchange which is nothing that anybody wants and that will actually take a long time because Nutanix has 60 days to file their 10 Q and even if they don't file their 10 Q they get to appeal and all this other crazy stuff you know how the legal system works we'll probably be doing a story about this in three years anyway There's a couple of very interesting moving parts here. The first is this idea that there was some improper software usage going on. Now, you know, they're dancing around who it was. We don't know for sure. But when you look at the fact that they were doing something with an evaluation license that somehow accidentally got pushed into production and then might have been used in some POCs, there's not a whole lot of software that runs on the Nutanix stack that is not customer licensed, that isn't already owned by Nutanix. I'll leave you to fill in the blanks of what it could possibly be. But this is one of those little gotcha moments that a lot of people don't really think about when they do stuff like this. Like I was telling a story yesterday about how I, when I worked for IBM, we used Lotus Smart Suite everywhere because, well, IBM owned Lotus, and so they were going to use it back in you know 2000, 2001. But as soon as I left from deploying laptops, the Microsoft Office 2000 CD popped up out of somebody's desk and was installed. I don't know if they had licenses for it, but I guarantee you that if Microsoft showed up on site and did an audit, they would probably find that they needed a few more licenses. How does that impact a publicly traded company? Well, if you have an expense that you haven't recognized in your accounting, that's a problem because that materially impacts the bottom line. And remember the word materially. Like one of the things we talk about all the time on the rundown is oh, terms of the acquisition were not announced. That's a fancy way of saying they got it so cheap that we don't have to report how much we paid for it. Anytime you see a number attached to an acquisition, that means that it hit a threshold where they were legally required to tell you what they were paying for it. It's like, um, you know, if you and your spouse or partner have an agreement that um, you're, you, you know, anything over 50 bucks, you have to tell the other person what you're spending it on, but anything under 50 bucks, you don't. You know, that are you going to buy a whole bunch of stuff that's $51 or $49? That kind of thing. I think what happened here is that this investigation is going to be a lot bigger than most people have expected, and the problem is, is that somebody has to take the fall for it, for lack of a better term. And a lot of people were kind of like, huh? Why is the CIO suddenly leaving? I think that what happened is, is that Wendy decided that this is probably the time to get out before things started going sideways. And yes, the CIO kind of is the head of operations for the company. When you think about it, you know, you've know got the CISO, the CTO, the CEO, the you know OMG, EIEIO, whatever it is. The CIO kind of ultimately leads that top of the operations chain. So yes, the buck did stop at her desk which is now empty and Nutanix is being very tight lipped about who will replace her and, and what's going to be happening going forward. I think they're kind of busy focused on this investigation, because when it comes to these kinds of things, you really want to make sure that you get every penny accounted for, because if you file a 10 queue that needs to be amended later, that causes your stock price to go down. So as a reminder to anybody out there, who's currently using improperly licensed software on your corporate laptop, um, remember that if your company has a stock ticker, you could be causing them to have to file late reports and cause the stock price to go down if the problem's big enough so just don't do it and uh, also good luck to wendy in in her future endeavors um you know we never like to see people getting laid off but sometimes that's just the way things work all right um it's been a while since we've talked about Oracle, but they announced this week that they are going to be deploying NVIDIA Bluefield technology to their cloud to increase performance. And they're going to be using Bluefield 3, which is the latest generation of DPUs that NVIDIA has developed from their Mellanox acquisition. All of this was revealed during the NVIDIA GTC keynote this week, they pointed out that Bluefield 3 has a power reduction uh, for servers that are using it over Bluefield 2 and also crazy increased performance compared to just using regular CPU to do that stuff. Um, A lot of this comes from the fact that Bluefield, of course, is a DPU. Uh, They call them a smart NIC. Um, That helps you kind of offload workloads from the main CPU and things like that. There was also an industry report that came out this week that said that DPU and smart NICs in the market are supposed to grow uh, at least 30% this year. Now, Chris, I know this is a technology you're pretty familiar with. Is this good news for Oracle Cloud customers? Is this kind of a field test for Bluefield 3?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think yes to both questions. Uh this is very interesting. Um you know, as you said, these DPUs are, are really what you know other people call smartNICs in some cases. It's a processor enhanced network interface card, right? And and as you mentioned, the whole point is to offload functions from the host, CPU, or GPU system, whatever's going on in, in the core of the servers. And you know, one of the big questions around DPUs, up to and including now, is yeah, that's cool, but what's it good for? I think we're starting to answer that question quite a bit. And I think that's why the you know Delora group is forecasting that smart NIC revenue will grow by 30% this year, um, while traditional NIC revenue is only gonna see single digit growth. And the Bluefield 3, uh, NVIDIA's third generation DPU is pretty impressive. Uh, there's 22 billion transistors, uh, which is just a fun number. Uh, it's double the Bluefield 2, the last generation, which had about 7 billion. It's a system on a chip device, uh, it's got 400 gigabits per second of bandwidth, where the Gen 2 was at 200 gigabits per second. It's PCI- PCIe Gen 5, uh, and the way they get those 22 billion transistors is through 16 ARM A87 cores. Uh, so really, really cool. It's also got accelerators specifically in it for software-defined storage, for networking, for security, for streaming, uh, and for line rate TLS and IPsec crypt- cryptography. So you know a ton of power packed into you know a, a package of a NIC. And and as I said, right, one of the things with DPU so far has been figuring out, okay, great, how do we use all of that? I think uh, we can trust OCI, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure Team, to probably have some software built around that or to build software around that to provide advantage to their customers from using them. Um, Outside of OCI, we're seeing uh, VMware's Project Monterey, which is providing this enterprise-friendly software layer using vSphere that can support third-party applications that we think will take advantage of SmartNICs. Um, The other thing that's really driving this growth number, I think uh, that we're projecting for SmartNICs over this year is increased interest in edge deployments, where you can see that, you know, using a SmartNIC in a server at an edge location could definitely boost the performance of that server itself. So I think it's going to be an interesting year as we see if these numbers hold true. And if we really see SmartNIC revenue, DPU revenue uh, increase by this, you know, big number of 30% this year. Uh, and also, you know, outside of just the SmartNics, I think for OCI specifically, it'll be interesting to see how they leverage these new Bluefield 3 uh, DPUs in their system and how that kind of plays out for their customers. I, like I said, I think they're going to do a good job with it, but it's all in the, in the software, I think, at this point. If it feels like your hard disk drive doesn't last as long as it used to, you are not alone. According to a report from Secure Data Recovery, modern hard drives aren't lasting nearly as long as the ones made just eight years ago. That's uh, depressing. The test covered all the failed drives they received in 2022. 80% of those drives came from Western Digital and Seagate and lasted, on average, 34 months before failure. The biggest issue, according to Secure Data Recovery, is the use of shingled magnetic recording, or SMR. Tom, how can drives made in the last couple of years be less reliable? And is this a signal that we all need to go to flash memory only?
0: Well, it's funny that you say that. Let me uh, let me go to my nuclear powered fridge that's lined with lead and uh, get a beer and sit down and tell you a few stories. Uh, this is something that we've been seeing for a long time that we feel like that even though we're making all of these advances with um, power consumption and uh, you know access speed and and all this other stuff, that it feels like things aren't lasting nearly as long as they used to, and it is true. And so one of the biggest thing, as mentioned in the story, is the use of shingle magnetic recording, which if you recall, and I'm trying to I'm remembering this from what Stephen told me, is they are stacking the way that the data is written to platters so that you can get more density in the same space. Because remember, we are working with a known fixed quantity here, a three and a half inch hard drive can't get any bigger. And we've seen, like, uh, we did a story on the rundown just a few weeks ago where we talked about the fact that someone finally figured out how to get two heads to write on a platter at the same time and basically kind of cut the drive in half. And instead of having one 20 terabyte drive, you have two 10 terabyte drives that you can address, but it's in the same package. The problem is that you're going to have to start getting creative with the way that you do this. And and SMR is one of the ways that the industry figured out how to do it. And with the increase in read-write speeds um, that are afforded by the things that they're doing with their controllers, effectively what they've done is fake us out. The problem comes as mentioned in the article, this puts extra stress on the drive. So we're dealing with mechanical stuff. I mean, I would challenge anybody under the age of, I don't know, 25 to tell me what a hard drive sounds like. They'd probably look at me like they don't make noise. Because the old the, the idea of you know the head clattering across the platter and everything like that that's outdated now everything like you said is running on NAND flash but the problem is is that the the capacities still aren't there I can go out right now and if I shop around I could probably find a two terabyte um, NAND flash disk running over NVMe for you know maybe $100, 150 dollars for that same hundred hundred and fifty dollars I can pull down like a twelve terabyte rotational drive. And those are great for archival storage. Those are great for me slapping them into some kind of an enclosure where I'm running raid on them and I can just send data over there. And if I never have to really use it, like if I don't really need to access it, like it's pictures or something like that, um, you know, I can just keep it over there. But the problem is, is that if these things are good for that kind of archival use, you would hope that they last a bit longer. And that's one of the things that they're running into. And in the story, like they and they analyze 2,000 failed drives. People send them drives and say, can you please recover these? And by and large, they have a pretty good success rate. But when, when something steps out of the, the data as being statistically significant, that should tell you something. Believe it or not, the statistically significant part of this is not that Western Digital and Seagate had 80% of the drives, because that actually tracks with the fact that Western Digital and Seagate make 80% of the rotational media that's being used now. To me, what's interesting is the fact that they can point to one factor being the overriding thing. The problem is, is that SMR is not something that can be disabled. I mean, Western Digital already had to pay in a court case because they were shipping SMR drives to people who didn't think they were going to get SMR. And also, I thought it was kind of amusing that uh, 34 months was the, the average time. Uh, you may be thinking to yourself, if you do some quick math, you're like, well, that's just a couple of months under three years. You want to know why most devices have a warranty that's the specific period that it is? is because they've done the math and they know roughly how long that device is going to last and so the warranty period covers that device's useful life so is the warranty on these drives two years oh good you can you it's bad you won't be able to get it replaced is it three years well on average you're probably going to get that drive replaced with another one that's going to last about three more years but i don't know i i i I agree with you i think we're probably going to need to get to a point where we're going to be um using more NAND flash in our local devices. I mean, NAND flash does expire also as well after about 10 years when the electrical charges disappear from the NAND cells. But the other thing you have to consider is where, if we're all using NAND flash and we're saving everything to the cloud, we're saving everything to these massive storage centers, how are they going to be storing that data? I'll give you a hint. It's not on flash. This is still going to be a problem for us, even if we're not the ones having to deal with it you know, companies like Amazon, Oracle, uh, you know, Shutterstock, whoever, they're going to be buying these devices, they're going to have to be the ones who are encouraging folks like Western Digital and Seagate to kind of fix their SMR problems.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting, I, you know, I don't know, right? Because the folks I talk to when they're buying, you know, spinning rust, as, as some people affectionately call these drives now, uh, they're doing it because they're cheaper, Right. And so, you know, as anything, there's gonna be a cost benefit analysis here that if, okay, if I need to replace these every 34 months, you know, what am I willing to pay? And if if really what I'm trying to do is drive the price down, maybe that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make is to have a few less months of, uh, of useful service. I don't know. Um, speaking of useful service, we already talked a little bit about NVIDIA's GTC. Uh, it's happening this week. There's lots of new hardware coming out. Uh, there's the H 100 card optimized for large language models. There's screaming fast GPUs for laptops and workstations. Uh, NVIDIA seems to have something new for everyone here. We've already referenced the announcement around Bluefield 3, as I mentioned, uh, but N- NVIDIA has also announced a new super compute cluster with DGX Cloud that you can totally rent for $37,000 a month. That's uh, you know same price as your mortgage, right, Tom?
0: Oh yeah, totally.
1: Um, So this is really interesting, right? I mean, think this year NVIDIA's GTC seemed to be happening right on the crest of a wave around, you know, GPT and large language models. It seems that AI is in everyone's minds now, right? We've we've talked about it for a long time in technology circles and in analyst circles, but it feels like it's really kind of grabbed the zeitgeist of the general population now. Uh, So yeah, I don't know, is is GTC going to be more exciting this year because uh, of all the buzz around the, you know, the things that their tools are used to build?
0: Well, I think what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to take a, a hard look and kind of push out the the marketing aspect of it, which is you know, one of the things that I love to do. We referenced last week in the rundown the fact that that Microsoft came out and announced that ChatGPT is kind of powered by these NVIDIA cards, and they were talking about how awesome it was and everything like that. But look at what NVIDIA is offering at GTC. Are they offering these huge honking dragster gpus that will you know do crunch data models and all this other stuff well yeah of course they are i mean that's it's like if they announced the new corvette and it did it wasn't a little bit faster and a, and a little bit sleeker and a little bit le- more comfortable less comfortable um yeah, you kind of expect that but what was actually shocking to me was the fact that they're kind of shrinking some of the stuff down i mean when you look at the h100 uh, which <laughs> one of the uh, the news sites affectionately called it just two a100s welded together um, but also the uh, ada loveless for laptops and for small form factor machines what ai what the nvidia has realized with ai and and folks that use things like stable diffusion and all that other stuff is having a massive supercompute compute cluster to do this is a luxury. Most people do not need to do this kind of processing across this massive window of, of data sets. I mean, wh- there was a quote that I heard from somebody in the last couple of weeks. It costs Microsoft th- or OpenAI, technically, something on the order of like $170 million to run the model for GPT. So they, they don't want to do it very often. But when I'm doing something on a very, very small scale, like maybe I'm indexing all the things on my machine or something like that. I don't. I don't need a GPU that requires its own, you know, generator out back. Like I just need something that's big enough to run against the model that I have or that I need to build. I mean, the the cat picks on Stable Diffusion. Don't don't need you know like a, a whopper sized uh, supercomputer cluster. And so I think that that Nvidia realizes that the only way that they're going to be able to sell this outside of the big companies is to offer something that is reasonably priced for what I want to do with it. And remember reasonably priced does not mean cheap. Um, Although I will say that one of the other things that a lot of people have commented on is that Nvidia looked like they were headed to a very hard decision point of the crypto market. Kind of the bottom has completely fallen out of it all the way down to the bottom of a bottomless pit. And so people are not paying, you know, four or five, 600% over retail value for these cards now. So how is NVIDIA going to keep the pricing high on them? Okay, well, we're going to throw in a whole bunch of extra features that a few people need. So I, I part of me wants to say that that at least they're kind of considering the fact that they're the, the top 10 AI users in the world are not always going to be NVIDIA customers. But I think that the other part of this whole discussion is, do I really want to buy a brand new card that has all of these features that I may not possibly be able to take advantage of unless I'm some kind of an AI developer? I don't know where that ends, but you know, then we look at the other announcements. Like we've already talked about Bluefield three, that's something that's super exciting to me, and it kind of it almost got a footnote. Hey, we're in, Bluefield three is is in production and shipping. We're going to use it on Oracle. Did we mention about this ray tracing thing that we're talking about? Like, like I don't know. I, that's been the thing for me is like if you're using GPUs to do all of these other workload things. How do you divorce that from the higher frame rate Call of Duty players? I I don't have an answer for that. I wish I did.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me also of you know some of the uses of some of these A6 and things, you know, GPUs for the crypto mining and how that kind of drove up the prices to the point where, you know, gamers couldn't, you know, even find or buy these these GPUs. And, And then of course they they start to wear out and people start selling them and you get them on, you know, kind of the gray market afterwards. Um, and I wonder if, you know, the similar dynamics are, you know, pushing and pulling, uh, between, you know, the, the, the gaming world and, and the business world, the AI world, uh, how that will all kind of coalesce. And the other piece that I think, you know, NVIDIA has been focusing on, it seems like at least to some degree, maybe it's just because that's where my focus is, uh, on, on cybersecurity. And they've got some, you know, uh, quite a few interesting sessions at GTC around cybersecurity, Uh, One of them is something that I haven't quite looked into too much yet, but I'm really interested in, which is this NVIDIA Morpheus, uh, an open application framework for cybersecurity developers to use AI-based cybersecurity solutions uh, in in the applications they're building. So as I said, I don't know too much about it yet, uh, but super interesting. I think there is this kind of constant arms race going on. Uh, in the cybersecurity world, where as AI gets more sophisticated, we see more and more threat actors starting to use AI on on the attacks they're doing, uh, and the way they're planning attacks, and the way they're obfuscating attacks. And so, you know, seeing these advances uh, from the NVIDIA side, where they're using, you know, their technology to kind of enhance what we can do with AI-based cybersecurity defense mechanisms uh, is, is pretty um, uh, reassuring, I guess.
0: And i think that you brought up an interesting point earlier when we talked about the fact that the security market seems to be headed toward this detection and response kind of of offering you know xdr edr you know whatever you're going to call it whatever it ends up being this next week that heavily relies on these kinds of ai machine learning models to look at anomalies and provide context around them Um, I, you know, I had a a conversation with a company that's doing some, you know, security type related things uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, and one of the things that they were talking about was the fact that you can do pattern matching all day long, but it doesn't take much to provide a way to escape that. I mean, think about something like a social security number. If I'm just scanning for three digits dash two digits dash four digits in in a system, all I have to do is change the way that those digits are represented. However, if there's an AI model that can look at it and tell me, okay, well, I noticed that there's these nine digits that are around a name and provided in a context that makes me think that this is PII, so you should probably be worried about this being stored in a document that's in a public S3 bucket. Like That's the kind of thing that AI provides value for. The problem is, is that, of course, you know, when we democratize AI, which is a term that that NVIDIA has kind of championed, uh, it means that the attackers get access to that too so now i'm going to train my model to look for nine digit numbers next to a name and hopefully that can give me some kind of a you know value for my money if you want to call it although when you think about the money what's it going to cost me about 58 cents to run this on a super compute cluster to to train the model so i i don't know i think that nvidia has a lot of great hardware because i mean that's that's who they are they're a hardware company. And it's up to us to find the applications to run that hardware in a way that augments what we're doing not replaces what we're doing i mean i was having this extended argument with my friends yesterday about chat 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 gpt replacing people writing like legal stuff like looking up case law it's a tool they're all tools we we have to integrate them into our workflows to make them make sense if we think that it's just going to replace this drudgery of our job The problem is, is that once the AI has replaced the drudgery, the job is not going to get done because the AI needs data to pull from, and then it's going to get caught in a feedback loop. So it's up to us to continue to provide that context, whether it's around security or networking or, you know, cat pics, who knows?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, One last kind of use case there, I think, you know, in in the cybersecurity stuff that you mentioned just to put in there is, you know, zero trust network access is another area that I think will be, you know, in addition to the detection and response stuff that AI can help with, uh, the zero trust network access is really interesting, I think, especially when you're talking about, you know, you know, potentially hundreds or 1000s of IoT devices that need access to a network and being able to determine is this, you know, uh, adversarial or not. Um, Anyway, yeah, all, all really interesting stuff. And I agree, right? It's really about Uh, the applications we can build on top of this hardware that becomes really exciting. And I think that's interesting that that's a lot of what, uh, you know, this GTC conference has talked about. There's a lot of developer-centric sessions that are talking about, hey, here's how, you know, here's what you can build with this. Here's how you can build with this. Um, Some kind of reference architecture type things, how to build a great cloud with their hardware. Uh, I think they're approaching it in, in the right way.
0: Well, the good news is is that AI isn't gonna replace everything just yet because the level of snark that we include in the rundown each week still requires a little bit of a human touch. Um, we do have some exciting events coming up in the weeks ahead that we definitely don't want you to miss happening right um, now as a matter of fact is storage field day. Uh, We are excited to bring you the latest edition of all things that involve keeping data in a certain spot. Um, Stephen Foskett is out in California right now. You can tune in at techfieldday.com. It should be on the main page. You can hear the dulcet tones of his voice and some of our great presenters there. Um, Coming up after that, I'll be back in California for uh, another edition of Networking Field Day. We've got some exciting uh, conversations that are going to be happening. Check out techfieldday.com to get a list of uh, presenters as well as delegates, including my friend Chris Grundemann, who will be there remotely. And then uh, right after that, just a couple weeks later, we are going to be traveling to sunny Las Vegas hopefully not blisteringly hot Las Vegas for um networking field day experience at Aruba atmosphere they've got a bunch of big announcements that are going to be coming out we're going to bring bring in a group of delegates to kind of talk about those um probably going to have some great sessions happening uh just make sure you check out techfield.com for more information um including a list of who will be presenting and when but uh Chris where can people go to check out some of the cool stuff that you're working on if they want to learn more about things that make your tech tick?
1: The The best place uh, on Twitter is at Chris Grundemann. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on the web chrisgrundeman dot com. Uh, and reports I was referencing can be found at gigaohm.com.
0: All right. And if you want to check out stuff that we do, remember that you can always check back in with us Wednesday at 1230 Eastern for the latest edition of the rundown. We are always uh, looking for great news stories to, to uh, bring to you. Also, if you want to check us out in a podcast form because you want to listen to us while you run or walk or you're on the elliptical training your AI model to lose those pounds, um, make sure you subscribe to us in your favorite podcast application of choice. Just search for the Gestalt IT rundown. Uh, we'll be back with next Wednesday with more great content. Uh, we'll be scouring the internet for stories that were not written by AI, like good old fashioned uh, humans that passed 12th grade English. But until then, for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for Stephen Foskett, and for Chris Grundemann joining us today, thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you have a wonderful day, an amazing week, and we will see you soon.